Suppose we uh, pause for a moment and pray together, and then we'll get started at it. Can do? Did everybody get one of these animals? Let's do it. Father, we're going to learn this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ addressed four particular situations in Mark chapter 10. Pastor Scott has already introduced this chapter last week with a lesson on marriage and divorce. And I'm grateful for his teaching. I know that uh, we have much to learn, not only about that subject, but about the other three lessons that Jesus taught in this chapter, and we're to tackle them today. So give us the ability to extract from the scriptures the things that we need and to apply ourselves to them as we pray through the name of Jesus. Amen. I mentioned uh, in the prayer that Mark chapter 10, and it would please me no end if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. You had a lesson in Mark chapter 10 in the first 12 verses last Sunday from Pastor Scott, and it had to do with marriage and divorce. That was a question put to the Lord, and so he answered it. And he took them all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to God's original plan, which was for one man and one woman to unite in a lifelong relationship, and they were to avoid disturbing and destructing uh, that relationship. In fact, uh, the word divorce is not a word that ought to be thrown about lightly by husbands and wives. When they have a disagreement, it's not a threat. If you do the, don't do this my way, I'm going to go see an attorney. That's not for Christians to say. And uh, our, our Lord taught about that subject last week. In the opening paragraph, I mentioned the other three subjects because there are four of them in this chapter. He talks briefly about the value of children in the kingdom, that we must become like them. And he talks about the deadly trap of riches. And there's a rich young man who confronts the Lord, asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question is almost silly because you don't do things to inherit eternal life. You have to be related to somebody. So you've got to pick your parents very carefully. You understand that? Maybe some of you have some work to do on that. And then at the end of the chapter, Mark chapter 10, he tells a story about a camel and the eye of a needle. And it's an interesting story because he tells a story that really is impossible, not just improbable, but impossible. And that's the point of the story. So there are three lessons left in this chapter that we want to tackle this morning. And I'm going to ask you to read them as we go. So I need a volunteer who is going to read just verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, 13 through 16, but to stand and do it, read it out nice and loud for everybody to hear. And I don't care whether it's a fella or a gal, but I need somebody to do that. Are you willing? Anybody? Of course not. Oh, good for you. I would be happy to have you do it. 
Okay. <laughs> you read it in English, please. Okay. Okay. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, parents were bringing their children to Jesus, recognizing that he had something to offer them and asking that he would touch them, hug them, hold them. Kids need that. And that he would bless them, pray over them. Um, my mom, even up until she died at 90 years of age, worked in the nursery. And she wasn't steady on her feet any longer, so they wouldn't let her carry little babies around. But she sat in a rocking chair in the nursery over there, and they would bring her little babies that were upset, maybe because they were away from their parents or whatever, didn't feel good that day or whatever. And Grandma Summers would hold them in her lap and rock them and talk to them softly. And those kids just settled down and felt so good here was some lady that loved them and was warm and sweet toward them. And as she rocked them and held them in her arms, she prayed over them. I don't know if that was true of some of you or not, but my mom did that for a lot of years here. And recognizing the warmth of Jesus and what he had to offer, parents brought their children to him. I ask in your notes, um, were you dedicated to the Lord when you were a little child? I don't, I was there, but I don't remember it. That'll sneak up on you later. <clears throat> I was there, but I, I don't remember it. And were you ever told by your parents that, that you had been dedicated to the Lord when you were a little one? Hmm, maybe not. Maybe not. Do you think that being dedicated to the Lord that way makes any difference in your life? I'll put it this way. It doesn't make any difference in your life if your parents don't make any difference with it and don't live up to that, that uh, vow. But if your parents take what they said that day seriously and they raise you to know Jesus and they teach you about the Lord and that you belong to him, and that ultimately your life belongs to him, that makes a difference in, in you. And then I ask the question, when you have children of your own, do you think you will do that? Do you think you will dedicate them to the Lord? Now, <clears throat> you're young and you've got some years ahead of you. You're not thinking about marriage just yet, but you are developing attitudes toward marriage by watching your parents marriage, by watching the marriages of kids around you, by looking and seeing who is warm and loving toward each other and has the kind of relationship that you'd like to have. Uh, all those things are formulating. You're not ready to be parents yet. Don't rush that. But do you think that when God gives you children someday, you will give them back to the Lord? that you will do what these parents in Mark chapter 10 were doing and present them to the Lord for his favor and his care? Huh, interesting question. 
Now, the conclusion that Jesus draws from this, if you will look at it, <clears throat> is at the end of verse 14, of such is the kingdom of God. And then based on that conclusion, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So evidently heaven is populated with people who trust in Jesus as a little child trusts in his parents. That's supposed to be a picture of the way God receives us. And when we come to Jesus in faith, we need to come not to tell him what to do, but to receive from him his blessing and his thinking and his way of life. Pastor Scott's going to preach about that this morning in church, and it's a really, really good message. Now, there's a second lesson that Jesus teaches in this chapter, and it begins at verse 17, and it goes through verse 22. So I need another brave soul who will read verses 17 through 22 of Mark chapter 10. Read it nice and loud. Andrew? Have at it, please. sad story in a lot of ways. He asks an interesting question. So Jesus deals with a young man who confronted him as Jesus was turning away from the situation where he had talked with parents and their little children and rebuked the disciples for trying to dissuade parents from doing that. Don't bother the master. He, he's got nothing for those little kids. Don't, don't bother him. Don't take up his time. Well, Jesus had time for children. So here he deals with this young man. Now the truth is that this story, in one form or another, is, if, is found in three of the four Gospels. And each one adds another little bit of flavor to the story. Mark says that he had great possessions. That how, that's how uh, the section of this that uh, Andrew just read ends. But Matthew said that he was a young man. And Luke says he was extremely rich. So you put all that together, and here you have a young man who doesn't lack anything in his own eyes. He thinks he's pretty good stuff. He comes to Jesus, and he says, uh, I, I own an apartment on my own. I, I own a car, a three-horse chariot, and... They are matching horses, and I have a ski tow boat that I pull behind it on a trailer, and the boat and the trailer and the car are all color-coordinated. 
and I have all the cool clothes to wear so that they have Izod or Under Armour or Nike or Adidas or North Face on them. I don't have any that say George. You're not with me at all. Where, where would you shop if you bought George? Walmart. Okay. He, um, he had this fancy outfit, and he was very, very rich. I don't know whether he got his money through some business deal or whether it was inherited through his family line, but he was a young man with great, great possessions, everything he wanted, he had. And he had a place in life, and I bet people looked up to him. I'm sure he had a lot of cool moves. And he had nifty lines that he used when he talked to the girls. Um, inside, he seemed to lack something. And he knew that all the money that he had couldn't buy it. And he came to Jesus, convicted. And he said, uh, what, what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, now think about the question for a few minutes. What do you do to get an inheritance? Nothing but be born to somebody who's got an inheritance to give. If, if you're the son of a skid row bum, you're not going to get much of an inheritance. If you're the son of somebody who's gone through bankruptcy and lost everything, you're not going to get an inheritance. The only way you're going to get an inheritance is if you are the child of someone who has an inheritance to give. If they don't have an inheritance to give, you don't get an inheritance. So this young man comes to Jesus and he wants to know what do you do to inherit eternal life. Elon Musk is buying Twitter for $44 billion. There are old families in our nation who have had money for decades and generations, and that money has accumulated. So if you're a Rockefeller or a DuPont or you know, a Ford or a Kennedy, then you are part of a family that will provide an enormous inheritance for you. That's going to come your way. Not because you did something, but because you were born and you were part of that family. Now, this young man who had great, great possessions, was extremely rich, asked the question and preceded the question with the remark, good master, what do I have to do? And Jesus ignored his question for the time being and dealt with the idea that he had declared him good. And he said, there's only one that's ultimately good and that's God. Well, that was a clue which if the young man had picked up on it would make the conclusion, then you must be God. But he didn't make that conclusion. Now, Jesus dealt with this remark about good master 
because Jesus wanted him to consider who he was before he gave him the answer. The truth is that your reception of the answer to your question has everything to do with what you think of the person who gives that answer. If you regard them as an expert in that area and you want an answer, then you regard that answer highly, strongly. You think that that answer comes from somebody who really knows their stuff. If you think that he's a left-handed jerk, has nothing to offer, and doesn't know what he's talking about, then why bother him with a question in the first place? Because you don't think much of the questioner or the question. Jesus said, I want you to consider who am I to you? If you think good master and good is for God and master has to do with following me, then are you ready to treat me as God? Are you ready to follow me? I, I don't consider this an exhaustive search, but I looked through the scriptures some and I, I read about the people to whom Jesus had said, follow me. I know he said that to James and John. I know he said that to Peter. I know he said that to Matthew. And I can find places in the gospel where he talked about following me. And when he later on in his earthly ministry talked about my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. So I know that Jesus spoke about the necessity of following him to a number of people, I don't know how many, but many. And as far as I can tell, this is the only occasion ever recorded in the Bible where Jesus invited somebody to come follow him and got turned down. This young man went away sad because he had all sorts of possessions that had a better grip on him than his need for an inheritance. Hmm. And Jesus is inviting you to follow him. That is said to all believers, to follow him, to obey him, to do what he asks. He even said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Follow me become part of a lifetime that's looking forward to, to following me. And Jesus then said, one thing you lack, and here's what you lack. Maybe you only lack one thing, but if it's the most important thing, I, I don't want you to make light of that. This young man understood that he lacked something. And when Jesus told him what he could do to fill that lack, he refused it. I'm sorry. There are some imperatives in verse 21. Take a look at them, if you would, please. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross. And follow me. Hmm. I listed them in your notes. Go, sell, give, come, take, 
follow me. He had asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? But you don't do to inherit. And when you want an inheritance of some sort, then, then you have to deal with someone who is capable of giving that. Um, I, I told you that I'm your great-great-great-grandfather, and I am. And um, it, it's funny because very graciously and lovingly, my kids have started asking about, who's going to get this when you pass away, or who's going to get that? I've been asked that about my car, which I think is hilarious. I have a daughter that said, uh, you know that painting of the tree in your living room? I wouldn't take it away from anybody else, but I sure would like to have that painting. Well, that painting was bought by Artie's mother when they moved into a house in Bloomfield Hills. And I like that painting too. And I would be happy to see to it that, that Sally got it. Um, but I'm not ready just yet to kick the bucket in order to give her that painting. Um, you understand that I can give that painting because I have that painting to give. Now turn that around backwards and think about what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you've got to be related rightly to somebody who can give eternal life. Ta-da! In other words, you have to be related to God, who is the only one who can give eternal life, if you're going to get eternal life from your Father. He's got to be your Heavenly Father. You need to be rightly related to God through Jesus in order to get eternal life. You don't have the skinniest chance of getting eternal life from someone who doesn't have eternal life to give. And God's the only one. When my mom died, <clears throat> she had three sons and a daughter, and we were together for the funeral. In fact, all of the three sons are pastors, and we took part in her funeral and used her favorite text in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, um, and divided that in four slots, and each of us preached a little, a little part of it. And then... We went back to her house after all the <clears throat> Falderab was done and sat there and thought about mom's stuff because we came from three different states, four people from three different states, each of us with a mate, each of us with children. What about mom's stuff? Mom didn't leave instructions about her stuff. Well there was one of her grandkids that needed a couple of appliances. So that was easy. Let them have the appliances. That's okay with us. My mom had an older Buick, a smaller one, and uh, uh, she had taken good care of it, but I had one brother that really was desperately in need of a car. So that wasn't hard. Let him have the car. It's okay with me. And when we got to dividing some of her stuff, there were dishes and things that belonged to her that meant something to the girls in the family, and they would like to have them. I think that makes good sense. 
And finally, I said to my family, you know, if there, is, if there are a couple th little things from mom that I could have just to remember her by, I'd be happy to have them, real happy to have them. But I already got from mom what I wanted from mom. I said, I got a mom. I got a mom who loved me for her whole life and who prayed for me every single day of her life and who stood by me through thick and thin. I got a mom. I mean a real mom. A real Christian mom. I got a mom who cared. For real. So I already got what I wanted from mom. If I got another couple little things, that'd be just fine. When my dad died, long before my mom died by a number of years, a lot of my dad's tools and other such things, a couple of guns, stuff, that got divided in the family because mom didn't want those things or need those things. But now it's mom that's died. And when I look at the things that she had, some furniture and, and a few books and things like that, I'm thinking, I'm so grateful to have something to remember my mom by. But it's because she left it behind and knew that. My mom died of a twisted bowel and colon cancer and had surgery in the middle of the night at Methodist Hospital. It was an emergency surgery. She would have died in great pain without it. Well, she ended up dying. It's one of those cases where the, uh, the surgery was a success, but the patient died. It took three days, but the patient eventually died from that. She never recovered. And that night, in the middle of the night, Artie and I stood by her hospital gurney in the hallway outside the surgical suite, and my mom talked for about 10 minutes. She told her salvation story, how she came to know Jesus. She told about the courtship with my dad. She told about the birth of us kids. There was a stillbirth along between two of the boys, and uh, there would have been another child in there, but uh, he died uh, partway through the pregnancy. She talked about the places where she and dad had served the Lord and preached and, and, and done things, talked about us belonging to the Lord, and my mom just talked on and on about how good God was, and she wouldn't change a thing, and she was grateful. Those are the last words I ever heard my mom speak because she didn't come out of the surgery in any condition to say anything to anybody. Um, and I thought at the time, what would I say if I was coming up to the end of my life? And would I care? She didn't care about who was going to get what or what or anything. There was never a word about that in her testimony. Um, she held those things loosely, held them with an open hand. And they were for us to worry about, not for her to worry about, not at that time at all. And I thought about that when I thought about this rich young man, because he was being foolish about some things. 
and his value system was all topsy-turvy. And he valued things more than the most important thing, and that's a relationship to God through Christ. I, I, uh, I, I feel sorry for him. Now, as the rich young man walked away, Jesus taught another lesson. He taught about the fact that it's hard for rich people. I'm glad he didn't say impossible. But it's hard for rich people to be saved. And then the disciples asked, who then can be saved? In other words, if rich people can't be saved, because they seem to get everything they want, who then can be saved? Um, so Jesus thought the fourth lesson. It's a story about a camel and a needle. It's kind of humorous in some ways, but it's an interesting story. And I need somebody to read from verse 23 through the end of this section. Verse 31. Can somebody volunteer to do that? Here, go ahead. Have that, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Interesting. So, Jesus said it's hard for rich people to be saved. So Jesus taught the fourth lesson in this chapter, a story about a camel and a needle. He uh, picked for the contrast here the largest land animal in the country of Palestine. And he picked as the opposite, the smallest hole in common, ordinary, everyday life, the eye of a needle. Now, years ago, I heard some Bible teacher explain this away. He said that in the gates of a city, there was often a small door, huge gates swinging on beams but there was a small door off to the side. And if you arrived with a camel load of goods to sell in the city, but you were after dark and the city gates were closed, then you could unload the camel, make the camel get down on his knees, open that door, and lead the camel through that little door opening into the inside, then carry all of your stuff into the inside, load it on the camel again, and close the door, and that's how a 
camel can get through the eye of a needle. The problem with that is that the words used for needle refer to a needle, the eye of a needle, the kind of needle you would sew with. And so that explanation doesn't get us off the hook. As he walked away, Jesus made a point of telling this story. And there are several things to be noted. I, I, Peter often got himself in trouble asking questions. You know that. That's Peter. I identify with Peter and his dopey questions. And he said, well, what about us? Because we've left all and followed you. And Jesus didn't even pick up completely on that. He said, uh, for those who follow me, I'll take care of them. They will have what they need and more in this life. And in the life to come, they'll have eternal life. They'll be mine forever. And not only that, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's an interesting thing. If you're last, how are you going to be first? And if you're first, why would you be last? If you're the leader, how can you be the follower? And if you're the follower, how can you be the leader? I don't know. Whoa, what's going on here? And the truth is that we see only a little bit of life around us from others who are believers. And in reality, I think that when we get to glory and our Lord passes out rewards and they will come, I think, I think that it's possible that some people we never heard of are more humble and more dedicated to the Lord and had more of his power and spirit's power upon them than we ever imagined. I think that they're going to be in line ahead of us if that's the way it works. It, um, it intrigues me that Jesus ended this section of Mark 10 with uh, a story that makes us think that it's not easy if you trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's impossible if you're trusting in your riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may be a believer in Jesus, and he may bless you with riches and abundance. Uh, he may be good to you in lots of different ways, but if you're trusting your possessions or what you have or the bank balance that you have in your bank book, you're not going to make it. You have to trust Jesus. In fact, that's the link with the story about the little children. The people who come to heaven are the people who see themselves rightly in God's sight and accept humbly what he teaches. I, I, I want uh, very much to share a little story with you. It takes a couple minutes to tell it, but <clears throat> I, I want you to, to listen to this, if you will, please. I found it in my notes, and... Um, and, and I thought, boy, that, that summarizes things well. There was a young man here who wanted what Jesus had to offer, if it was convenient. I want what Jesus has to offer if I 
can have everything else that I want. And Jesus stuck a pin in his balloon. He said, well, here's what you do then. You get rid of all that stuff that you're trusting in and just come to me. And he didn't want to pay that price. Interestingly enough, that a young man full of promise and possibility turned away from Christ. His things got in the way. If God doesn't ask me to go where I don't want to go or to do what I really don't want to do, if I can be a mover and a shaker and have all of this and still have Christ, why then I'll be okay. But if he has to come first and I have to become like a little child and just trust him, then I don't want it. My possessions are getting in the way. And here's the story. There were 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Five of them were captured by the British. Twelve of them had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground. Two of them lost their sons in the Continental Army. Two of them had sons that were captured by the enemy and tortured to death. Nine of the 56 fought and died in the revolution itself. Carter Braxton was a wealthy planter and trader. His ships were captured by the British. He was forced to sell his land and mortgage his owners. <clears throat> his estate was seized by his creditors and he died penniless. Not only that, Thomas McKean was hounded by the British and moved his family constantly. He served in the Continental Congress without pay. Vandals and soldiers looted the properties of Ellery, Clymer, Hall, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. And at the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson discovered that British General Cornwallis had set up his headquarters in his house, Nelson's house. And he went to General Washington and begged him to open up with cannon fire on his own house. And they did that. And it was destroyed. By the way, Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home destroyed. The enemy captured his wife, put her in jail, and she died there. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside, <clears throat> and their 13 children fled for their lives. His grist mill was laid waste. He slept in caves and in the woods, and when he finally returned home in December of 1777, he found his wife dead and his children had vanished. These men, these 56 men, were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing thugs. Nine of them were farmers, 11 were merchants, 25 were lawyers. They were men who just valued liberty. And in the Declaration of Independence, which they signed, they wrote these words. For the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It cost something to sign 
the Declaration of Independence. Now, learn from that. Your salvation cost something, but God paid the price so that you could get it for free. If you take his free gift of eternal life, you know now that following Jesus may cost you something. That's the way he designed it. If you value this life and the money that you might make more than you value your soul, then turn and walk away, just like the rich young ruler did. And enjoy it to the full, because eternity is a long, long, long time. If you're ready to follow Christ and forget the cost, then know that God will take care of the cost and reward you for that. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Father, uh, this piece of Mark's Gospel is exceedingly important. I pray that you would bless it to our memory, to our mind, to our heart, to our lives, and that we would follow you regardless of what we think is the cost. The real cost was the blood of Christ, which has made it all possible. Help us not to be swayed by counselors who tell you that you need to go into this endeavor because over a lifetime you will make a certain amount of money. That isn't the deciding factor of our lives. We are believers in Jesus, <clears throat> and we will let him do with us as he pleases. Bless us as we consider these matters, for they are of, of vital importance to us, and we ask that through the name of Jesus. Amen.